0: And welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's most rub-a-dub-dub, three men in a tub. Stefan likes to touch entrepreneurs with his soul food. He has a new soul food brand out called Stefan's Go-Get-Em-Money-Money-Spice, and he will be selling that online. The Instagram handle, Stefan's Spice Salad. What is happening? Follow that. This is the most malleable, most goopy and uh soft.
1: This is this is grotesque. I would
2: argue I would argue goop actually isn't malleable. The idea of something being malleable is that it's like almost like
3: it has to hold some face. it
2: can hold, right? You mm-hmm. can mush it and it will hold that new shape. Whereas a true goop does not hold a does not have the structural integrity to hold a shape
0: and looks like Lauren has just graduated with an English degree.
2: I so. read a lot as a kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I have the vocabulary of an advanced 12 year old
0: and that advanced vocabulary will be on a full display later this episode when Lauren interviews the filmmakers behind how to blow up a pipeline. Is this correct?
2: Yes. It is. I, I have a lovely chat with Daniel Goldhaber.
0: Is he the author of the book as well?
2: He is not. The author of the book, okay, so that is something to clear up for listeners. How to Blow Up a Pipeline is a fictional Hollywood movie directed by Daniel Goldhaber based on a nonfiction political movement theory book of the same title, How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm. It came out mid-March, so it's probably still in theaters, but I do know it's also coming to streaming soon. I do not know the platform, but I do know it's getting a digital release.
0: And we will be turning to that eventually. Um, My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter.
1: I'm Stephen Hostetter.
2: I am Lauren Latour. And if you keep in the part about the bathtub earlier in the episode, do note that although I'm not like a stickler around gender gender identification, I am in fact not a boy in a tub. I am a woman who does sit in a tub a lot. Favorite place to cry. Favorite place to be on my phone. (sighs)
0: You heard it, folks. Rub-a-dub-dub. That is not a man in a tub. And we are going to do some climate news discussion before we get into that. Stefan wanted to start us off here by speaking about, I believe it was the Alberta elections, because Stefan just loves to stick his long nose into politics. Wow. Um,
1: first of all, I should notice you are listening
0: to C I U T eighty nine point
1: five FM, or maybe you're catching us on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicate partners, or perhaps on the podcast. Anywhere podcasts can be found, including the Harbinger Media Network, who are actually doing a ton of great work on the Alberta election. If you want to catch some really good new stuff about the Alberta election, go over to the Harbinger Media Network. There's a lot of progressive folks out there doing a lot of good work, but. I will say that, for those who are not aware, the Alberta election is well in full swing. I believe we are somewhere in week three or week four at this current moment. and When does it end? May 29th. And what's what's fascinating about this election, I think, is that there is a hundred reasons why the main topic of this Alberta election should be climate change and the oil sands. Right now, Alberta has barely breathable air because of forest fires.
0: Well, you want Rachel Notley to just blow on those, blow on those, make those go away. We're going to build a wind turbine. It's going to blow the wind towards the fires, Stefan. What's, what's she going to do? Just dump solar panels on the fires, okay. make them go out, Stefan? Okay.
1: Somehow, despite the fact that we do have this raging forest fire issue that is ongoing, which has been made worse by the cuts the UCP made, Despite the fact that even a month or two ago, of course, we covered this with an interview uh, with Environmental Defense in regards to the tailings ponds that have been poisoning First Nations communities. And despite the fact that the only reason they are able to have the budgets they have right now is because oil has bounced back for a bit and gave them a surplus, which has now gone back down a little bit. And so somehow they have managed to pretty much avoid talking about it both the UCP and the NDP seem to have no interest whatsoever in having a real conversation about the ongoing burning of their province.
2: Yeah, right now, basically, from what I understand as, like, a dummy Ontarian who is loathed by basically every Albertan she knows... The election is down to basically like the UCP, which are like super right wing cuckoo bananas, and the NDP, which are for all intents and purposes the regular old conservative party in um in Alberta. And and a thought which is not mine, which I'm totally poaching from a much smarter organizer who who I will not quote because it it wasn't like said in like a super public forum. It was said in like a medium public forum. But basically their assessment. They're they're kind of concerned that like youth voter turnout is going to be super duper low this time in Alberta, for the good reason that none of the parties are really appealing to young people on the biggest issue that I think even in Alberta young people care about, which is like climate existential anxieties and like basically the 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 future in general. And you have a UCP and an NDP, both of whom, like you said, Steph, aren't talking about climate at all. It's not even that they're like showing up poorly on climate. It's just not an issue. And as a result, neither of these parties are appealing to young people on the issues they care about most, which means young people don't aren't aren't really being given a reason to get out to the polls, which again is, is intimidating because typically, generally speaking, when young people go to the polls, progressive parties perform better. And although we've established that the NDP in Alberta is decidedly not progressive, they are still the most progressive option. And if young people aren't showing up to vote for them, Justifiably so. I don't think it's completely outlandish to think that Danielle Smith could retain her title as premier in that province.
1: What's amazing is that the UCP really has partially been pulled even further to the right, you know, by this "Take Alberta Back" movement, which is an even further right to their already very right existence. In a way that they've managed to, re- they are running candidates. They've they've done a very they had a very successful showing at their um, convention. And there isn't really yet, and maybe if I would say a loss by Notley here would and very much should create a deep, deep question within the Alberta NDP about what on earth they are doing. You know, this is sort of the, if you are trading your real beliefs for power, and ability to do some things is an argument you can make, but if you are alienating your base to the level of which they are, you know, like they are very clearly trying to win over, you know, conservative Albertans who are conservative, you know, ten years ago and may not follow the current UCP given the some of the things that Daniel Smith has put forward, rather than trying to just energize the people that have supported them for the last 10 20 30 years. There's taking those people for granted and assuming that they they're where they can find votes is actually in this middle section. You know, like I I'm looking at this uh article in City uh, in on CTV News Edmonton which sort of highlights the main seven things that both sides are saying they will do. And the UCP obviously basically has absolutely nothing related to climate change except for continuing to ex- extend the pause on a on the on the fuel tax. So basically just encouraging people to continue to burn even more oil. Uh, and, of course, giving $330 million uh, to the Calgary Flames' is arena.
0: The Saddle Dome? I think, is that the name? The Saddle Dome. There you go.
1: Yeah. Well, this will be the new Ar- Saddle Dome, I guess. I oh. guess, you know. I, w-
2: um, I wish we still called the Rogers Center the Sky Dome.
1: Yeah. It's a way better name. It's undeniably deniably better name. Most people in Toronto still do if it's any consolation.
2: Good. Okay.
1: Um yeah. And then and then for the uh, the NDP, you know, they've got clearly some things I think that are pushing for basically rebuilding the education system and the healthcare system that have been, you know, damaged by by the UCP. But then the closest you can find in these seven things to any real climate change plan is a tax credit to spur investment in clean tech and critical minerals processing. So, I mean, honestly, basically just like another tax credit and for mining and, and maybe a bit for wind power and solar, whatever, but like not certainly not a climate change plan. Um, the re bringing back the rap attack program of elite aerial wildfire firefighters. So, I mean, that's a gimme, like at least they're doing that. Thank you.
2: The only reason that's happening is because they are literally in a wildfire crisis right now, and people did a good job of bringing attention to that.
1: And probably you need that, a better version than that, honestly. Like, probably there should be more than just bringing it back, right? Like, it's not enough to just bring something back if things are going to get worse, as they definitely are.
2: No, exactly. And, and in no way am I diminishing the work of those firefighters, but like, in no way is it controversial. To yeah. give money to wilderness firefighters, especially when they're all like, I don't know, strapping youngsters in like cute yellow jacket. Anyway, sorry, again, not yeah. meaning to diminish the work of those people. <laughs> but I mean,
1: firefighters are pretty universally... Uh, supported. You know, like, I really, you could run on a double our firefighters, you know, and I think people would be like, cool, even if you'd have to cut everything else. I think people just like firefighters.
2: Low-key, that is absolutely how we should frame climate adaptation.
1: Campaign <laughs> funding.
2: Everyone should be firefighters. Everyone should be firefighters. We're all gonna get so much hotter, you guys, in, like, literally every <laughs> conceivable way. And
1: then, and then the last one, ban coal mining projects in the Rocky Mountains and surrounding areas, which I think, again, had been a rule previously that they undid.
0: And we will now turn to a spicy music break and come back with some climate news here on The Green Majority. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our patreon page thank you very much we are a proud member of the harbinger media network featuring great shows such as tech won't save us press progresses sources and the forgotten corner podcast We are back with the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your local community radio station. And we are continuing with the Climate News. The Canadian Labour Congress which is the largest labour organisation in Canada, has passed two resolutions that will see it fighting for tougher federal climate policy. Uh, They aim to expand clean energy while protecting workers. The National Observer reports that one member opposed the resolutions because they call for a ban on expanding coal terminals without differentiating between coal used to create steel and coal used to create electricity. Another member opposed the resolutions because he thinks they should be pushing to nationalize the entire energy sector in order to cut profiteers out of the business.
2: Yeah, like low key, really hard for me to argue against nationalizing the sector to cut out the profiteers. So like, that's the thing. I remember reading this piece and they're like, oh, and like there was some dissent to the motion at first. You're like, oh, boo. And then you read the dissent and you're like, oh, I'm kind of on board with the dissent in terms of the like the nationalization. And then I think somebody else... One of the other people, and maybe it was the same person who was who was publicly dissenting to it, but somebody mentioned like a lack of of, of language around transitioning those workers um, out of the coal industry and and, and into cleaner jobs. So like I, I can completely understand those sentiments as well, but like yeah, baby, let's nationalize.
1: And I, I gotta say that this is exciting for me um, in many ways. This is this is good news. This is like one of the better news that has existed in climate change. Canadian politics for at least a little bit. And one reason why it should be taken more se- really seriously is because of the work of uh, N- 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 New York Renews, or NY Renews, as it's called, which is a group that started with a labor focus and worked with a labor focus on getting climate change bills passed and b- building renewable power uh, in New York passed. And in some of the work that they've done Uh, led to the passing recently of a bill that was called Build Public Renewables Act, which ensures that all state-owned properties that ordinarily receive power from New York Power Authority are run on renewable energy by 2030. And this came really out of a foundational investment in training and speaking with labor And using that training and speaking to be able to push for these kinds of acts that will allow for union jobs to be making this power and then the power to be sort of mandated in a really direct way. And so like the path towards really ambitious climate action, I think, has to come through these sort of. This, uh, through a labor movement in, in consultation with you know indigenous peoples and stuff like that, like a little bit like we've talked about in regards to our book, uh, our book club. What's being proposed there is a, at a scale where you're not going to get it done with just environmental people on board. You know, like the, just like just enough green people are not going to get this thing passed. You have to be building power through the unions, especially because of their already ingrained power and that means that this kind of thing is super, super good news. Um, It really does mean that it begins the conversation for perhaps transformative change rather than the trimming the edges that we've seen before.
2: There's um, there's a paper that it was one of those things where a friend sent it to me weeks ago and now it's been like languishing in tabs purgatory on my Chrome browser for the last few weeks. But it was specifically um, like a call for just transition and like a pretty comprehensive plan, not just like a statement like, hey, we want this, but like and dictating what that would mean coming specifically from Scottish laborers in like the North Sea who currently work in, in the oil industry out there. So cool to see them really putting like obviously being organized in a in a in a really in depth way to call for like this comprehensive change and then doing such a good job at dictating exactly what it means for for them and for their communities um and and for folks in their line of work
1: and and, and this is the the kind of things that. Will work right, like in the in the NY Renews sort of email blast that they sort of did in, tr- in support of the pass the, re- the oh, sorry of the Build Public Renewables Act. They directly combine the fact that a they New York had plateaued at about four percent of wind and solar generation, so like they weren't really expanding that with the fact that the energy bills have skyrocketed despite the fact that renewables are actually so much cheaper to make now. And then combining those two conversations with the fact that they need lo- local jobs, and the one thing that renewables really do well is that they keep jobs where the power is being generated, because you have to service all of the renewables. And so it's not like you end up with you know one place far away having a big having a big power plant or something like that, but you get a, distri- a very healthy distribution of work for people working on this. And so I think those kind of combination of things and these th- really. Uh, is the groundwork needed to be done to get real action?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm going to let us move on because I know we have to, but I did just want to say I found the tab because I'm a good person. And it's Friends of the Earth Scotland. Um, And the report slash campaign, love the name, is called Our Power. Um, And then the report is uh, Offshore Workers Demands for a Just Energy Transition. So I'm going to read that. Listeners, if any of you want to find that, you can find it that way. It's Again, it it was put out by um, in, in collaboration with Friends of the Earth Scotland.
0: A bunch of birds and a few other species have been dying in a Suncor tailings pond in Alberta. The huge ponds hold the toxic residue of oil sands production, and Imperial Oil, the company behind a year-long tailings spill they did not report, will soon have its 1,200-page document that it submitted to an investigation committee made public. So I guess this is like they have these toxic tailings ponds and they try to have deterrence to try to get animals not to go in there, but then they go in there and they touch the water and then immediately they die.
2: Yeah, basically. It's like if you've ever seen um, a movie called Dante's Peak, at one point they're trying to cross a lava river and they can't because it's full of acid and the boat's deteriorating. So the grandma has to get into the water. And I feel like that's what the birds are like. They're they're the grandma in the acid lava river. Anyway, I digress. Mm -hmm. Um, on this, on this note, um, I do think what is kind of like interesting or a, a positive step forward to come out of this, if we're, if we're looking specifically at that, um, months long Imperial oil spill leak, um, is that, uh, the federal, um, government through ECCC through, through the environment ministry, um, has opened a formal investigation into the tailings leak, um, which is it might be what you're referencing in that 1200 page document I don't actually know like if, if that's the extent of, of the of the research or whatever but anyway I was talking to somebody who knows far more about um this sort of like tactic of like this formal investigation and apparently what it does indicate is that if, if the government is going through the trouble of opening the formal investigation calling for all this research to be get, to be done it is um it tends to be indicative of the fact that like prosecution will be pursued, which in this case would be very cool. Um, and prosecution would be pursued under like a convention of the Fisheries Act, I believe, um, because because that's how they can sort of get involved in stuff like this is, is, is because it is a it is a body of water um, that has been compromised. Um, so that is good, at least that that prosecution is, is potentially on the horizon here for imperial oil.
0: As we already mentioned, people in Edmonton are having trouble breathing in their own homes from wildfire smoke as air quality warnings have been issued across Alberta for the many wildfires that have been burning there. And methane gas is legally considered clean energy in two states, Ohio and now Tennessee. Ohio passed a legislation saying that in January. And now Tennessee has. And in the article I read, they're equating methane gas with liquid natural gas. Is this the same thing? Or They're equating they're, they're it with natural gas, not necessarily liquid natural gas, but they're calling methane natural gas. Yeah. Is that what's gotten from fracking, just methane?
1: Yeah, so natural gas is primarily methane. Apparently there's a little bit of other stuff as well that is included in methane, not what is considered natural gas, but it's mostly methane. And, you know, that's bad. I mean, like this is the type of thing where I'm sure there, the argument here is that if you burn it, then it doesn't actually release the methane; it releases other, you know, lower amounts of carbon, and therefore that's not as bad. But of course, any methane that spills out without you burning it, which is a lot, is twenty times worse. And so you have to really, like, you shouldn't be trying to do the math about whether or not methane is good enough to do it right like it is not going to be a bridge fuel we've already discussed this many times this is like the thing that everyone knows it's honestly a really kind of terrifying development that it almost feels like we're backsliding on this to be honest it feels like we were actually further along in this idea of transition and only recently has this idea that oh we can call natural gas a a you know, low energy or clean energy thing has come back. You know, it got snuck into the Canadian federal budget recently we discussed. It's now being considered as an option to create blue hydrogen in a more serious way. And now these states are deciding to call it clean energy as well. And, like, this is a significant backslide uh, that really needs to be pushed back on because as the conversation we had previously with uh, say no to LNG in regards to the shipping industry – it is a fossil fuel. It is a very dangerous fossil fuel that we really, really cannot expect it to be just better in that for OK, because that's just not how this works in many different ways and in many for many different reasons.
2: Yeah. Um, one of the things that was sort of recently brought to my attention again by somebody um smarter and more experienced than I is that apparently in certain spaces, like on, on the East coast, for instance, when I went to university out there literally a decade ago is when all of the, um, anti-fracking uprisings were kind of in, in, in like had, had reached a bit of a fever pitch and, and were really active. Um, and after they got the moratorium, after, after the moratorium was won, things obviously kind of like trickled off and that fight is, is ramping back up because Higgs has indicated in various capacities that the moratorium might be lifted and that, um, Oil uh, exploration for natural gas might become a factor again and that fracking might be introduced to the economy. And this sounds so asinine, I know, but given that terminology like blue hydrogen has been so effective at obfuscating what in fact is actually happening in terms like natural gas are really good at masking the fact that it is in fact fossil gas. I, I genuinely think that if we can get the word fracking as it pertains to natural gas and liquid natural gas back into the discourse, I honestly think that is helpful from a messaging standpoint because, and I know this sounds so stupid, fracking is a scary sounding word. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't evoke confidence. It doesn't evoke The idea that this is an industry that is benign and only positive. The way you can get away with LNG, so innocuous. Blue hydrogen, that sounds environmentally friendly because water is blue and so is the air and that's the environment. Versus like fracking is like, ooh, that doesn't sound good at all. That's a lot of consonants and it sounds like the F word. So like I'm honestly hopeful that if if nothing else good comes out of – well, actually, no. What I think will be good is that, again – Indigenous communities and folks in New Brunswick and folks in Nova Scotia will be able to once again defeat this fra- this attempted fracking boom out east. And then that will reiterate that that, that that just isn't an economy that's ripe for that sort of investment and that sort of Production. Anyway, that will be positive. But also potentially positive is the reintroduction of that terminology back into public discourse, because I think there's a lot, a million more sophisticated reasons as to why LNG has made the sort of strides it has in recent years. Um, But I genuinely think one of them is because we haven't used the word fracking as much as we used to.
1: So what we got to do is go back 20 years when. We really didn't like the concept of more gas-based fossil fuels and Battlestar Galactica was on air, which where frack was a swear word on it. So that's what we need, those two things.
2: It's like, it's like I sort of wish acid rain was still a problem, if only because talking about acid, acid rain sounds scary as hell. If we had that to point to, if we were like, guys, forget climate change, acid rain, man, that's a big deal.
1: The two, like a part of, I think the reason why we solved the acid rain and the ozone hole, and ozone layer, is because both those things sound intrinsically scary.
2: Yes, yes, a hole in the layer that protects you from the aliens yeah. and scary poison rain that falls from the sky.
0: And we are going to return, turn to a little bit of music here. I guarantee you, it will massage your brain into a dispensation that is just prepared to digest our propagandskis, We're good to roll here. Just drink in these truths.
2: People should count their lucky stars that the music won't massage their brains because then after that you get a half an hour of like this vocal fry fiasco pumping into (laughs) your ears. So get freaking stoked, people.
0: Turning with Lauren's interview with the man behind the film How to Blow Up a Pipeline. The man's name... I have forgotten.
2: Daniel Goldhaber.
0: Daniel Goldhaber. And we will return with that great interview, so stay tuned here. If you think about touching that dial, I will be knocking at your door.
1: Do not threaten our listeners.
0: I will threaten whomever I desire to threaten. This is the radio. (laughs)
2: And we are back. Thanks so much for sticking with us, listeners. You're on The Green Majority. My name's Lauren Latour, one of your co-hosts, and I'm here joined by Daniel Goldhaber, uh, the director, writer, co-writer, producer of How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is in theaters in pretty... Is it in, like, official wide release or just pretty wide release in Canada?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... I I actually don't totally know about Canada. I think it's in wide release in Canada.
2: Yeah, I mean, I know I've seen it in cineplex which is like the big chain here so you should be able more, to catch this film in whatever theater is closest to you though obviously listeners if you can find an indie theater that's preferable
3: and more importantly i think will also be released on digital platforms on may 2nd Amazing. Um, so people will be able to rent the movie as well
2: that's fantastic we love there that. Are
3: theaters nearby showing it
2: mm-hmm which in a lot of small towns anymore is not the case. We don't need to get into that. It's a whole other exactly barrel of monkeys. Okay. So so stoked to have you here today. This is a film that obviously a lot of people have been chatting about lately, especially within quote unquote movement spaces, because it's built it's built off of or rather based off of how to blow up a pipeline by um, movement theorist and academic and activist Andreas Malm. And that book, when it came out, obviously made some waves uh, a couple years ago when, when Verso released it. So I think it's been really cool for folks who are involved within movement spaces to see this story brought into, A, a more narrative structure, but B, a, a sort of more mainstream space where it's kind of the messaging and the concept is, is getting out beyond typical movement players. So thanks so much for sitting down with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for having me. So the film and the way you sort of structure it, you explore kind of like the story of self of all of the different activists that that kind of join this little affinity group that develops over the course of the film. And, and story of self for listeners is, is based off of like Gansey and movement theory around storytelling and narrative building as a way to like bring in more movement players. Anyway, so so you're kind of telling the story of self of each of these individuals. I would love to know sort of like, what's your story in this case? And I guess what I'm asking there is like, how did you come to a place where you wanted to tell the story involved in how to blow up a pipeline? What's your experience with climate grief and anxiety? And maybe prior to reading Malm's book, what was your relationship with with activism and civil disobedience?
3: Love that question. And glad to know that there's some theoretical underpinnings of the way the movie was structured, because I think that, you know. That question of story of salt for us was was mostly just about trying to bring audiences into empathizing with why somebody would do something like this because so often the way that you know acts of of sabotage are narrativized in the media is it, it so thoroughly denies that kind of empathetic connection that moral justification connection, and that was something that we were really you know that's the, that's the backbone of the movie both emotionally and kind of philosophically. For myself, my parents are working climate science and have my whole life. So I kind of grew up not necessarily fully in the movement, but certainly extremely adjacent to it. And, you know, we were evolved as a family in kind of basic kind of climate march, the kind of mainstream forms of protest that I think that we have always been taught, especially in my generation, were the things that, you know, if you get enough people out on the street, change will simply happen. But even starting in the early 2000s, you know, we had something like, you know, there were like 2 million people or whatever that mobilized in New York to protest the Iraq War. You know, you had all of these kind of mass people on the street protest movements, and yet nothing was actually happening. And I think that what, what that initially instilled in me in a young age was, I think, a great suspicion and frustration with the way that kind of movement theory was taught in schools and the way that. There were these kind of notions of change that were instilled in us as children from a young age. And so, you know, that continued when I was in high school. I got my first job working in film, working as an assistant editor on a documentary about climate change called Chasing Ice. And that was this film about a team of photographers that were documenting kind of disappearing glaciers the time-lapse photography. And, you know, working on that film, was that was very much part of the, like, awareness-raising moment in climate, you know, where we do have to remember that even 10, 15 years ago, you couldn't really bring climate change up in polite political discussion without often being kind of having the fundamental facts disagreed with. But at that point in time, too, I had, you know, working on those projects and around the impact groups on those projects, I had a great frustration with, I think. What I saw as a lot of awareness raising, but without any teeth behind it. It's like you're raising awareness for the idea that we're hurtling towards a climate apocalypse, and then saying, "Write your congressperson." And there was always a kind of cognitive dissonance for me in that because it's like we've been writing our congresspeople. This whole like three percent change theory—you know, far more than three percent of the population believes in 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 climate change and global warming—and yet nothing's happening. So. I've wanted to kind of tell a story about radicalization and escalation of tactics for a long time. I just had never quite found the right way into it. And I think that in reading Malm's book, I think it provided both an extremely compelling theoretical underpinning for the movie, but also just a target. And I think that what's so interesting about the way that Andreas conceptualizes the movement is specifically that. He makes, you know, the book is essentially three parts. Part one is a, a history of sabotage and property destruction and, you know, escalated tactics throughout every social justice movement in history and essentially saying, hey, this is what happens when change occurs. Then, you know, he makes a moral case for, you know, needing to escalate tactics to fight climate change. But I think the third part of the argument is this notion of, well, what do we actually attack? Because there is no one person or government or company that you can say, oh, you're responsible because we all participate in climate disruption and some to a far greater extent and some to a far lesser extent. But it makes it very difficult to say, oh, yeah, it's oil CEOs that we have to go after because that's not really a morally sound argument. And I think that what Andreas does is he says, well, where you can construct a morally strong argument is this notion that you're allowed to attack the machines that are killing us. And I think in that, that provides not just, I think, a really valuable theoretical pretext that reframes the moral debate around climate action. It also suggests a like fantastic villain for a movie and a very fresh kind of target for a heist film. And so it was kind of in putting those pieces together that I think that me and the rest of the film collective felt like, okay, there's there's something fresh and exciting that we can do here.
2: Yeah, I guess one of the one of the other films that was sort of coming to mind when I was watching yours not not that there are a ton of huge similarities, but but thinking back on like the number of movies that maybe explore this concept of like whether or not you really consider it violent or not, but like nonviolent or violent direct action or, or quote unquote eco terrorism is is a movie that came out several years ago now called The East that starred like Elliot Page and Alexander Skarsgård, I think. And anyway, that's a movie that does sort of target individual people and like the ceos is have you seen the east
3: i have seen the east yeah Yeah. i saw the east in theaters when it came out i was very excited for it at the time
2: yeah 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 no it's very sort of i feel like that came out of very much like a like an ad busters energy of of the early of the early aughts anyway yeah well i
3: i think that but i think that the east is you know there's other films like it there's the east there's night moves, there's First Reformed, which, you know, in particular is a great work of cinema. But I think that the problem with all these movies is that they they play into this trope that I think you see on the left and on the climate left, which is essentially it treats failure as inevitable and as a given. And it treats the act of sabotage as kind of a, a thorny, morally complex place where like the group dynamics are complicated and people are doing stuff for this reason and that. And that that makes for great drama. But ultimately, I think that you can't build a movement on the back of moral complexity like that. The story can have moral complexity, but ultimately, like there's a reason that the military taps into the kind of Hollywood structure of storytelling to create propaganda. It's effective, and it's very effective at building social consensus. And there's absolutely a place for those kind of thornier dramas about about stuff like this. But I also think that kind of portraying the story of, you know, a necessity defense and an act of self-defense that is the destruction of an oil pipeline in the vein of kind of a Hollywood action film, I think is the kind of thing that just, it gives the movement a hopeful thing that people can actually group around and say, well, that's what success looks like. And I think that that's really valuable.
2: Yeah, absolutely. To success. I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, but even the way you play with your agent provocateur characters and and their arc is is kind of cool and plays into that as well. Anyway, moving on here. So would love to know a little bit about the process of adapting Malm's book. Was he on board immediately when you approached him? I'm assuming you and your team approached him. And then, like, was the writing team and Mom were were you all aligned on sort of, like, your thematic and messaging priorities? Like, was this, like, a... Was this harmonious from the get-go?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we wrote Andreas shortly after reading the book once we kind of figured out a very basic idea of what we might be wanting to do. And I spoke to him about it. And he he just immediately, like, knew what we were trying to do. And, and Andreas is... He's a very, you know, strategically minded person. And she, I think, understood that like there's absolutely a place for this particular kind of discourse, you know, a Verso book and then the kind of discussions that occur around a Verso book when it comes out. But also, you know, that's extremely niche. And the hope of this film is that it's something that, as it continues to circulate in the culture, can have a more mainstream and wide appeal. And that's even just been the case. You know, we were able to go on CNN and NPR and Plant these ideas of property destruction as self-defense in the culture, and 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 I think that we want to continue doing that work. And he he understood that from the get-go, and so he wasn't terribly involved in the actual writing and development. But we would always kind of check in with him, send him drafts, talk to him, send him cuts of the movie, and just kind of make sure that we were on the right track and not kind of deviating from I think the spirit of what he did. And it was just always really lovely to have a kind of backstop there.
2: Yeah. Were there a lot of other organizers and activists you consulted throughout the writing process or?
3: Yeah, yeah, quite a few. Most of them were people from Andreas' World Network. Some of them were people that Ariella knew from her experiences in in climate and from her life. There were a number of indigenous activists and organizers, filmmakers that we spoke to as well, especially because that was a storyline that was very, very far outside of our immediate lived experience. But it it was a pretty broad research process.
2: Can I ask, you chose to sort of build your story around this really young cast of characters, all in my mind, like, appeared to be around Gen Z, maybe some young baby millennials there. Why did you choose to to sort of build this cast around really young activists as opposed to, like, I don't know, reading a little bit of, of how to blow up a pipeline? I feel like there's a lot of, like, world weariness and exasperation. That comes through in the book. That's maybe a little bit drawn on the fact that it's written by a a person in their mid forties. So, like, why? In in terms of that age group, why? Why did you gravitate towards the younger cast?
3: I mean, I think that that's our audience. That's our target audience. I think that when we also started writing this, we were kind of like, who would these people be? And I think that we just kind of said, well, it's just going to be us and our friends. We're not going to try to like imagine some other group that doesn't exist. We're going to just say. What if it were us, and that's something that we feel like we can speak to and And I think that that it's also just there is absolutely an older generation of climate defenders who are, you know, uh, also escalating stuff inside of the movement. I just don't think that it's a story that we felt that we could tell as well.
2: no, no, that totally makes sense. Just the fact that, like you said, you were modeling it off of like you and your friends and your peers and 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 how would you be behaving in this situation? makes total sense. You talk a little bit about that audience there, or you or you just mentioned them. and I was sort of thinking that, like that's something that, as organizers and activists, we obviously have to consider when we're developing a campaign strategy and and selecting tactics and messaging is sort of the audience and who you're trying to compel and what you're trying to compel them to do. So I've heard you refer to the film as like a version of propaganda, and that, like, you're clearly out here with an agenda of persuasion. who Who is it that you're trying to persuade with the film? I guess what who who makes up that audience ideally?
3: I actually we've said the opposite we've said that we just don't we don't really see the movie as propagandistic for a single idea because i think that we like propaganda often makes for not terribly great cinema and also for something that i think like the hope with this film is that if it's propaganda i mean all movies are political all cinema is political the political identity of this film is that it's about eight characters who believe that the destruction of an oil pipeline is an act of self-defense so if there's anything that the movie is propagandizing it's an emotional and empathetic connection to that justification for these eight people and that's valuable that doesn't mean that the movie is telling people go blow up pipelines it's not really it's not for a number of reasons it makes it look extremely difficult It also, like, is obviously fantastical. It's also, like, it does engage with the kind of moral complexity of an act of sabotage like this. And I think that the idea, though, is that, you know, I do believe that the necessity defense deserves its day in court. And in order for that to happen, there is going to have to be the social and political will to ensure that that happens. I think we'd sometimes pretend that the court's just, like, respond to the moral authority of the day somehow, but they don't. They respond to social and political pressure. And that isn't going to exist unless there's actually an awareness and a and for something like the necessity defense. And I do think that the necessity defense is the most likely legal tool that could be used to essentially force a system to move away from fossil fuel infrastructure. So we're definitely trying to get people thinking about that and talking about that and there's a tremendous amount of cultural value in that. There's value in the fact that the climate movement will escalate tactics. It's a certainty. And it's a certainty just because that's what people do when they start boiling alive, is they start fighting back more aggressively. And I think that one of the things that we also see them would be doing is being a counter-narrative to the the certain kinds of narratives that are going to come out of the uh, mainstream corporate news about you know why people do stuff like this now there's like an accessible thing that people can point back to and say oh this is you know this is maybe why somebody would do something like this
2: um yeah something that i thought was sort of interesting about the story you're telling of this group of of activists and i think is is helpful in pushing back on the narrative that i don't know mainstream media tends to sort of Actually, not. I don't even want to blame mainstream media, just people in general who aren't involved in activist communities. There's a common misconception that, like, acts of protest are kind of, like, spontaneous and spur of the moment, and they're reckless, and planning doesn't go into them. And I think one of the things you effectively do with the film is show that, like, no, no, there are months and months of meticulous planning and forethought that go into any tactic, regardless of whether or not it is sabotage. And that was that was kind of cool. So as someone who makes their living from storytelling... A question I'm often wondering is, what do you think the climate movement gets wrong about communicating and storytelling around climate? If you have any thoughts on it, like, why do you think we're not necessarily or haven't necessarily won the fight around climate when people have been at it for so long? And I guess I ask because although you you spend a little bit of time going back and forth with your characters, sort of debating strategy and tactics, there is a, there's like a little bit of a threat of disdain for the mainstream climate movement that that comes out of the movie a little bit, not in a bad way. So yeah, I guess I would just love to know that. Wh- what do you think we we get wrong about storytelling around climate? Why aren't we compelling? I think to that there's
3: a. Yeah, I think that there's a number of things, and I think that it's it's a delicate balance between wanting to recognize that you know I'm not an activist. I've done a limited amount of activism in my life, and I've nothing but kind of the utmost respect for the people that dedicate their lives to solving the climate crisis exclusively. But I think that the places where I see things go south is. Number one, it's a, it's a fear of alienating people from the movement. I think that if you're afraid of alienating anybody, but you can't speak to the reality of what we're facing, you're kind of declaring your movement as toothless from the get-go. And this is something that you see on the left constantly is, oh, if we do X, that might alienate Y, and then we won't win. But if you look at the right which is undeniably winning virtually every baton, they're not afraid of alienating people. Um, in fact, they recognize that one of the greatest tools of the trade is alienation. Because if you can, you know, if, it doesn't matter if you, if you have 10% of your base, 30% of your base, that's extremely passionate about something. Even if the rest of your base thinks that your candidate for president is, you know, a whack job, reality TV, you can pull them into voting for him. You know what I mean? And that just pulls everybody further to the right. And I think that it's about having your eyes on the prize and knowing that if you do, if you're correct and you're willing to kind of push for that, all systems go, that's generally speaking how change happens. And so when it comes to messaging around that, it's also very complicated because I also want to, I also want to say that I'm talking about change on the biggest, broadest, most systemic scale. And I think that one of the other things that like, I often have to be careful yeah. about and that also makes theories of change really complicated. And this is something that we dig into a teeny bit in the movie, but barely, I mean, if we touch on it, but it's that there is such a fundamental difference between change at the local and community level and change at the systemic level. And I think that something that I always need to try to be careful about in my messaging is making sure that, it's clear that I'm talking about systemic change and not a lot of day-to-day change, which is fighting small battles on the community level, which is protecting and advocating for individual lives, individual communities. And that's very different. And it's something I don't understand nearly as well. I think that, that, to go back to the point I'm trying to make, is that I think that if you have your eyes on the prize, it's kind of one of these things where... You know, for our storytelling, it needs to be focused on action, not awareness. It needs to be focused on success, not failure. It needs to be, it needs to be focused on having as broad of appeal as possible, mm-hmm. not on kind of being as, um, not on kind of, you know, flexing its artistic bona fides. Mm-hmm. And I think those are some initial things that, like... I really believe in first stuff like this and I also think having a healthy awareness of kind of what the corporate ecosystem wants from storytellers and why and I think you know this is a movie that we made totally independently distributed by one of the fast one of the, one of the last truly independent film distributors in you know the US and I just think that you know there's a reason why we didn't have almost any interest from any corporate partners is because you know they're not interested in supporting stories like this
2: yeah i can imagine i can imagine that would have been a hard sell if you if you'd been going to to bigger studios with it something that i i was skimming through sort of past interviews and one of them was the one you gave at tiff or actually just the screening that happened at tiff and was reminded that rbc is one of the major funders at at the toronto international film festival and rbc is like I think when the banking on chaos report came out a couple of weeks ago, I think they are the biggest funder of oil and gas projects around the world. So it's it's sort of funny that in a roundabout way. Anyway, they ended up supporting in some capacity.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 definitely that's a complicated relationship. And it's, you know, I think it, it also speaks to this this delicate dance that you have to do. Like, how do you try to how do, you, how do you try to attack a system where every single thing that you do is connected to the thing that you're attacking? And and I think that that's the thing, is it's an ecosystem of change. And, you know, I hope that this movie is one little small part of a very, very large ecosystem, and that's part of an ecosystem, that's part of the cultural production ecosystem, but the movie itself does not qualify as activism, you know?
2: Right, but but that point about ecosystem is is well made, I think, especially in relation to a movie about sort of like direct action and, and sabotage, it's, it's because direct action and sabotage is, like, are, are themselves part of that sort of ecosystem of the movement and exist to, to push that. I know we, we use the phrase Overton window way too much anymore, but helps push that Overton window of possibility and, and orient the movement. Anyway, I think my last question for you is, is anything different for you and your relationship to climate action, activism, whatever you want to call it, after making this film and telling this story?
3: Well, I mean, massively. I couldn't even, you know, point to any single thing because I think that I was very, I necessarily alienated from the movement when I started working on this project, but I'd say that, you know, like everything from the amount of exposure I've had to kind of indigenous activists and what that side of the movement has been, that's something I had not really been exposed to very much. I think the amount that I've kind of about some of these differences between kind of community and local level change versus systemic level change and I think also just the amount of opportunity I've had to meet with activists who are you know doing front lines work and just get a better understanding of what the battle is and how hopefully as a cultural producer I can be helpful
2: that's incredible thanks so much so won't no we we can either confirm or deny whether or not you're out there slashing SUV tires and in in l a or or whatever but um Exactly. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time today, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Listeners, if you want to check out how to blow up a pipeline, you can potentially find it in a theater near you or as of May 2nd in your homes as well on, on digital services. So thanks for your time.